Life is a canvas. Listen as Dr. Allison R. Tendler and her guests paint the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and business leaders on her podcast, The Art of Seeing Clearly. Through insightful questions and thought-provoking conversation, Allison and her guests explore the essence of what it means to truly experience life, business, entrepreneurship, love, success, and even failure through a clearer lens. everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Allison R. Tendler, board-certified ophthalmologist, surgeon, owner, and CEO of Art Vision and Artisan Skin and Laser Center. I literally get to work every day to help people see better on the 2020 eye chart. But true clarity in life and in business often requires a slightly different kind of vision. I happen to have a passion for learning how other entrepreneurs and leaders find their clarity, and I want to share with you some of their secrets to success. Author and producer Sean Koval and makeup artist, mom, and illustrator Rebecca Swift teamed up to create Porter the Hoarder, an interactive reading adventure, part look and find and part read with me. Porter the Hoarder provides opportunities for the littles, kiddos aged 3 to 10, and the bigs, parents, grandparents, and siblings, to enjoy the fun and engagement of reading and promoting literacy. The first in a series of 64 books, Porter the Hoarder and the Ransacked Room follows the ups and downs of an obnoxious little girl named Porter as she has to clean up piles of junk from her room. Readers locate Porter's quote-unquote collections, which include things like snotty handkerchiefs, manic monkeys, moldy sandwiches, and lightning-fried lizards, and then help her decide what stays and what she has to throw away. Both Sean and Rebecca come from artistic, creative, and entrepreneurial backgrounds. You may have heard a little movie called Napoleon Dynamite, as well as the epic television series Grey's Anatomy. We're excited to learn more today about these dynamic creatives and why they chose to partner up. Rebecca and Sean, welcome today to The Art of Seeing Clearly. I alluded in our introduction to the podcast to both of your tremendously successful and fun careers, not only in film, but in television. And there's so many other arenas that you guys are part of and enjoying. And so before we jump into all that, I want you to tell us a little bit about where you grow up. And I know you're both living in South Dakota. So Rebecca, why don't you start? I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee. My parents met at a Taekwondo tournament. And so they were opening up schools down south and then one in Tennessee. So when I was born, my dad's like, well, we can't exist just with a karate studio. I mean, we need to do something else. So he moved us back to Yankton, South Dakota, where he was born. He went to medical school and then he was a doctor in Yankton. So I grew up from eighth grade on. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. Was that a hard transition for you then, Rebecca? The worst. The worst. And I'm like, such And at age 14 or so, that's a really tough, yeah. really tough thing. Yeah. And we had just moved from Ohio in sixth grade. And that was an even worse transition. Oh. I just don't want to go to Ohio. <laughs> Sorry if you have any listeners. Sorry for anybody from Ohio, but we've got somebody very passionate about that, <laughs> even more so than Yankton, South Dakota. Oh, man. <laughs> and how about you, Sean? Rebecca's parents are ninjas, which is awesome that they're black belts. So it's hard to follow ninjas, ninja doctors. That's incredible. I grew up in in Edgemont, South Dakota, which is pulled the state in half and it would touch Yankton, I think. And it's about 500 people. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. It's a ranching railroading community over on the west side of the state in the very south part of the Black Hills. And, uh, you know, it, growing up, I attempted every sport available and failed miserably, painfully, and publicly at all of them, which meant that I could only go into entertainment. I was the mulleted bass player of a band called Screwdriver Lobotomy, which was not particularly good, but was particularly loud. And I was looking forward to a skateboarding sponsorship, despite the fact I lived in a town with all gravel roads almost. And yeah, so it was a storied education coming up, let me tell you. It's good to know where your passion doesn't lie. Did you try hard to fit in thinking oh, yeah. that that's who I'm supposed to be somehow? No question. I mean, you know, we're we're all, you know, around South Dakota right now. We I think we all have small towns in our backgrounds. You know that 
you are part of everything and sports are at the center of the, certainly the high school experience in small towns, not just in South Dakota, but across. Or so what we think the center is supposed to be. Exactly. Right. So I got most improved in track, which means you're terrible, but you're less terrible than you were not long ago. But you showed up. Thanks for participating. Exactly. Because everybody else got an award, so you get one. I, I wrestled. I was a 130-pound weight class wrestler at six foot two my freshman year, and I had a perm that I would stuff into my headgear, and I'm a redhead, so I had like puffy poofs of perm. Asking for a friend, did you have a headband with that big poof of red hair? Regrettably, I did not. That would have been an excellent contribution. No, I just had headgear for wrestling, and I came out, and I only lost one match my entire wrestling career because I only wrestled one match my entire wrestling career, and he pinned me in 30 seconds and broke all the fingers on my left hand, and it was the nicest thing anyone has ever done for me because I had no business wrestling. I'm impassioned when it comes to the matter of Oh, that's fabulous. So you're both living in South Dakota now, yet your lives take you out of the state, I'm presuming a fair amount. So tell us how that works. Sean, I'm going to start with you since you just finished. How does your life currently work? I think that the story of my life, at least to this point, it it just looks like a boomerang. I fought like heck to get out of my small cowboy town growing up. And once I got out, I fought like heck to figure out how to get back in. I didn't really understand the power of community. And at the time, it was more like scrutiny, right? Takes a village to raise a child, but nobody asks the child how they feel about the village. Raising. And everybody's watching and tattling or saying totally. this. And- I snuck out one night my entire high school career, walked down to Main Street with my friend Bob Ray. We're like, what do we do now? We didn't know. So we just walked back home and there were six phone calls by 8 a.m. the next morning saying that I was out gallivanting around town. I went off into the world, the distant wilds of Nebraska for my undergrad, and then San Francisco after that, which was the true culture shock. But there I saw young people being successful. I saw people with creative concepts teaming up with VCs and creating something where nothing was before. I became a headhunter, learned what I really wanted to do in life, which was to tell stories. And the way to do that was to produce movies. Moved to Los Angeles, where I set out to to attend the Peter Stark producing program at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts, which accepts 25 out of 3,000 applicants per year, and got there and realized I was the, which one of these things is not like the other person in the room. Like everyone else had gone to Harvard and Stanford and Oxford and Yale, and I was the University of Nebraska dot, dot, dot at Kearney. And my first job was docking sheep, which is a story I never thought I would tell anybody. And I hid my roots at first, but slowly realized that those unique stories about growing up in South Dakota, that was my superpower. Original storytelling and all the things. So teamed up with a friend from grad school, went off to make movies. Napoleon Dynamite was quick out of the gates. And then I went off to make 10 more movies, but found myself coming back to South Dakota four or five, six, seven, eight times a year and found myself trying to replicate South Dakota in Los Angeles. Trying to Good luck. I was just there this last weekend. But then you know all too well that it's a different <laughs> sort of deal. So eventually I said, you know what? Made 10 movies. Only one is shot in LA. Only one's been financed in LA. I can live Anywhere. back to base in South Dakota. And now I teach at USC each spring. So I travel back and forth during the spring semester. You still get some of the love of the LA vibe. And yes, I say, even though living in South Dakota, you can travel anywhere. Might be a little tougher to get there, but you can go anywhere. What about you, Rebecca? What's your story? You were in South Dakota, you landed back in South Dakota, or did you never leave? I briefly left for small amounts of time when I was pursuing, I think in your 20s, it's pretty normal for anyone to want to get out into the world and be like, look, I'm finding success. I'm doing these cool things. But yeah, like Sean, I just, I was pulled back to South Dakota. The people here are kind. You don't have a lot of egos to deal with. And I get to deal with those when I travel for movie makeup. I get to have fun. So I get that like that LA vibe in all of the ways. But then I get to be brought back home. And it's just, it's peaceful here. I say that all the people that are now moving here, I'm like, quit telling people how good South Dakota is. Just say it's terrible. It's just a terrible place to live. You should never want to go there so that we somehow selfishly want to keep it how it is. But that's never in life. Nothing ever quite stays the same. But it is a special little place. So it's really unique to see two people who could be anywhere in the world and anywhere in the nation and then still find that they can 
be who they are, live their lives and their careers, yet still find South Dakota to be home. Absolutely. The experience in Los Angeles was amazing. But the second I opened my eyes, I felt like I was at work because it's such a different environment. And every meal was based on some movie dealer trying to put together. And until I closed my eyes at night, I still felt like I was at work. In South Dakota, I can find peace and that peace allows creativity to come through. And not only that, but I'm able to create things here that I could never have created in Los Angeles. Uh, and we'll talk maybe about the 12 yeah, days. Of I look forward to doing it. So from a young age, clearly sports wasn't for you. Did you, Sean, feel that like this creativity, the expression, variety of mediums, did you sense that in yourself or did it really take until several years later for that to, this is actually who I am? And how did you find that? Well, I have to thank Christy Littell, who kicked my butt in student council in sixth grade because I prepared- <laughs> Thank this- you, Christy. Thank you, Christy. Shout out. Yeah. yeah. He's a huge listener. Yeah, I had prepared this multi-point speech about how I could be the greatest treasurer the middle school of Edgemont, South Dakota has ever seen. And she got up with one of those old, remember those thin like boom boxes, the small blasters that were super small that still took 24 D-cell batteries. Amen, yes. Amazing. And hits play and she beat, she she had recorded herself beatboxing and she proceeds to rap for 45 seconds and it was just a standing ovation in the room. And she- Oh, well, for Christy, everybody. <laughs> Did she have t-shirts as well? She needed them. Yeah. So I learned enter- entertaining is an option. And then from there, I ended up doing a whole bunch of student council stuff just because I got to get up and do stand-up comedy and stuff in front of the school and have fun. And storytelling suddenly got a place. I ended up with a radio show. My <laughs> radio show on the only radio station that covers the entire- southwest corner of our fine state. You actually started to embrace that, like, this is who Sean is, and it might be different than what's traditionally thought of in small town, South Dakota, USA, but it's okay. It's okay. And I was the bag boy at the only grocery store. So I do my radio show in the morning before school, and it was a feedback loop. Mm. That afternoon, I get to talk to everybody who listened. And like that was so reinforcing in so many ways. It did have a slight downside, though. I would warm up by talking to myself in the bathroom while I was getting ready every morning. As because, any good person should do. As they should. You're just getting, you're getting everything going. As a result, I will continue to talk to myself in any restroom anywhere. I was at the Creative Artist Agency in Beverly Hills in the restroom, and I heard someone clear their throat from one of the stalls and realized that I also heard my own voice echoing around the room. I was in battle mode. So. There's something called self-awareness. How about you, Rebecca? Did you know that this creative energy lived within you? And uh, when did you sense that this is who I am? Oh, man. Yeah. This is all I've got going for me is creative energy <laughs> since I was a little tyke. Yeah. School was never my thing, but art class and doodling throughout every period was. I've always illustrating Disney movies and singing along with them. Theater when I was younger, just anything that had to do with the arts is my favorite thing. And I don't want anything to do with anything that's not art. (laughs) And you knew that pretty young and you just gravitated towards those things. And so it wasn't like, hey, I tried to be something I wasn't necessarily... Did you feel pretty comfortable in your own skin at that time? No, no, never. And I was younger because I was a misfit. I was different from everybody else, the way I thought, the way I focused on things, the way I didn't focus on things. And I think the biggest part of finding that confidence was figuring out which artistic path I should take. And I've taken a lot of different ones. How did you figure that out? And do you feel you're on the correct path now or... Yeah, I have this thing where I hyperfixate on stuff. So I hyperfixated on writing and recording two studio albums. And then I wanted to pursue music, but I, first of all, signed the wrong contract. And at that point in my life, I was like, no, it's over. And then I went on to pursue something else. Now, looking back, I'm like, I don't want to be on stage unless it's for Port of the Porter events. Also, I don't like fog machines. I don't like flashy lights. So I never would have, but just wouldn't have been for me life as a musician, period. I would have hated it. But in that time, you're like, oh, this is right. This is totally the right thing. 
Yeah. So your artistic form still comes in many different fashions. But one of the things you're known for is being a makeup artist. So where did that come in the line? Like, how did that occur for you? When the music didn't work out, I needed to do something else creative that I would actually have a chance at succeeding in. And I liked the idea of a cosmetology program. I didn't realize how much I would hate touching hair. I don't like touching anyone's hair. I don't like when it's wet. I don't like when you cut it. There are hair slivers. Do you know that? There are hair splinters that... I have never heard of such a thing. It's it's horrifying. We're going to take your word on that, Rebecca. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I completely was like, I'm out of here. I want nothing to do with hair. And that left me to focus on aesthetics and makeup artistry. And I actually had the pleasure of working with Sean in New Orleans on a movie. And that was my first. Film. Was that your guys' first time together? We had met. You'd uh, met before? Okay. Certain events. Yeah. So we were working on this film in New Orleans and there were bullet wounds and there were special effect things that I really was into. And I took that back when I had only been doing beauty makeup and I had so much fun with that theatrical stuff. So I really dove into that. That has a shelf life too. I'm cu- I still get to do the movie makeup, but now I'm focusing more on aesthetics because aesthetics is it's peaceful and it's not like layering things on the skin. It's more stripping away the skin and helping people with natural beauty and just feeling really great about themselves. But you're in this super calm environment. It's calm for everybody else as they don't see the storm behind the door. Yes, that no, we're doing. Except- the storm behind the door is literally my house because I'm opening a hunt spa in like <laughs> days. <laughs> Congratulations on that. So best wishes as you do that too. As you guys have noted, your artistic expression comes in many forms. And how did your two forms of artistic expression come together to form the Porter the Hoarder book series? So Rebecca had that character and it'll be great to hear about the genesis of it. But the second I saw it, immediately the voice became clear and a project just emerged. Rebecca, can you talk about the evolution of where Porter came from? And it was based upon something you had noted with one of your own children, correct? Absolutely. Yes. My daughter, Logan, who is 18 and graduating this year, what? When she was a little girl, she was a collector of things. A little bit like mom, if you can see behind me. <laughs> but she was collecting. See, that gives me a little anxiety, but that- I'm sorry. And it was <laughs> for me. The rest of my house is minimalism and black and white. I have like clear you, surfaces. You deserve your room. You deserve your room. Freaking me out, if I can be honest. I also need to purge this stuff too. And I think Logan, she went through that as a child too. So I'm cleaning her room and it was it's just horrible. You open a drawer and there's just a mountain of candy that she had been hoarding and storing from the previous Halloween. This is in the spring. So I'm like, ah, that's why you have three teeth left, poor kid. But yeah, I just, I drew up a little illustration of a little blonde girl with pigtails. And the idea of Porter the Hoarder had come up. And yeah, I I shared it with Sean and he was like, oh yeah, we're going to run with this. (laughs) It was good timing. I had just read a book called Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus with my producing partner's son. And William was maybe five at the time. And many people will know this book. It's hugely popular. But the central premise is inside the front cover, there's a crayon-like drawing of a bus and a crayon-like drawing of the bus driver looks like a milk van. He's like, I got to go for a second. Whatever happens, don't let the pigeon drive the bus. Next page over, a pigeon appears. And for the next 25, it's the pigeon using different tactics to the reader saying, can I drive it? I'd let you drive it. I'll give you five bucks, like that kind of thing. And Liam was losing his mind yelling no at this book. So I saw this engagement and this fun game that was happening. It was a book that was a game and a game that was a book. And at the same time, my sister was second grade in Sturgis. And I was talking to her about children's literature. And she pointed out the I Spy series. And the kids in her class would get that book and just hang out on the beanbag and just laser in on finding all those hidden elements. So Porter had the opportunity to be a look and find like I Spy. But Rebecca had taken such a simple concept of a character and infused it with so much emotion that we could also make it interactive with Porter asking if she could keep things. In book one, she has to clean her room. 
and you help her find a collection of 10 snotty handkerchiefs. I've got a five and a half year old daughter and amen to all the things that you find. <laughs> I'm like, this is like exactly written about my daughter, which I'm sure other people have said, this is about my child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, we've heard it a time or two. <laughs> yes, indeed. And you see the engagement of a big reading with a little, and you see them together playing this game. And when the question comes up, should she keep it? Should she throw it away? The yes, no interactions that the child has they were immediate and obvious and palpable. And that was so fun. And we just did the book for fun. What we didn't know is we were hitting on a major movement in early childhood education at the exact same time we were creating this book. Rebecca, did you feel like this was ever going to become a book? Was that your concept too? Or was it when you shared the idea with Sean as this needs to be this? What were your thoughts on that? We kind of threw ideas back and forth and... I think collectively landed on the idea that it would be a look and find, but also a some something where the kids can yell out and yeah. And then I let him take the reins entirely, and I was like, "You write the book, and then just give it to me, and I'll draw it." Wow. Had you illustrated anything else before that, other than your your caricatures, yeah. your doodles, if you would? Just a whole lot of doodling, a lot of painting throughout the years, but never anything that was ink and paper and never anything that transferred over to drawing on an iPad digitally and putting into a book. What has surprised both of you about not only things that you learned, but what this book has done for the community? Oh my gosh, what a great question. I think that, again, when we set out to do it just for kicks, we had no idea that we were lining up with these two massive initiatives, which is family engagement and early childhood reading ability. We didn't know that yes. nationally, only, only, big word, only, just and only 32% of elementary school students can read at grade level, can read at grade level. And if they aren't able to read by third grade, you learn to read in kindergarten first and second. You read to learn in third and on. So if you can't read by third, there's the third grade reading gap and they're able to correlate third grade reading ability with prison capacity planning in certain geographic areas. It's that devastating to a kid's long-term longevity. And also this idea of families connecting, everybody's on screens and everybody's busy and all that kind of stuff. So we've been so surprised to, to see order find its own life. As we teamed up first with the United Way and then with the Family Engagement Center and went from supplying a few books to 20 schools to now every first grader in South Dakota gets a copy of Porter the Hoarder on Porter the Hoarder Day and we're expanding to North Dakota, Utah, and Montana. Watching this thing just build its own momentum has been most fulfilling because we hear about the stories either from kids who come to book signings or through social media about what this book is doing at home. And those stories can be amazing. I think you've said it all. I think the coolest thing is at the family engagement events when we can watch the children light up and they're teaching their parents something and the parents are listening and they're having fun too. There's smiles on everybody's faces and it's, whoa, this little engine that could, this little book yeah. that threw together years ago and now having just released the seventh, or I think we're just about to, it's just, it's really cool. It's like, how did we get here? But I, isn't life fun? Life? Yes, it is. Fun. You got to, you have to go with it. And Sean, you said so many amazing things in the answer you gave. And I hope that we can dive into some more of those too. But before I do that, as a kid, what was your guys' favorite book? Stinky Cheese Man. <laughs> man oh my gosh that book haunted my nightmares the design of the stinky cheese man is mind twisting it's so scary i've never read that book so i'll, I'll maybe look at it but not buy it but interesting how about you sean you know what at my grandma's house in dad's old room was a copy of the pokey little puppy and it was a golden book so i just loved going my daughter has that one as well yeah really that was the one that I had a pokey little puppy t-shirt freshman year of high school. That tells you about how cool I was. <laughs> did that say anything about you or did it just propel you to be even less pokey? It's just, I also had like a lemon scented t-shirt. It just, uh, well, I, it just made you, it made you happy and be yeah. yourself. Uh, one thing, Rebecca, that I had uh, read about you is that you didn't feel like you're naturally a good drawer or a good artist. 
And how have you transcended that thought process from being a child who doodled to, I'm not just a doodler, I illustrated. It comes in waves because I think any true artist will tell you that their work is just not good. And that they are always trying to evolve to something, something else, something better. But it comes in waves too. If I don't practice and we live in this age where, you know, I, if I'm not drawing a book by page three, I'm like, whoa, I didn't expect this was going to hurt so much. I got to take it easy on myself. We don't write a lot. We're typing and using our thumbs to text. So if you don't use it, you'll lose it. And that's true with drawing because if I'm fully practiced, I'm like, wow, I'm impressed with what I did. But if I don't practice, I'm like, wow, a kindergartner really could have drawn this. And which is also cool about the Court of the Porter books. They are very simple, the illustrations, and we wanted them to be. The coolest thing that we get to do, well, that I get to do when we're speaking to kids and we're on stage, I'll teach them all how to draw Court of the Porter. Every single one of the students in the auditorium is going to know how to draw Porter and they go back to the classroom and they do because we break it down. It's like, we're going to draw, what's your favorite sweet? I like cookies. So we draw a big circle and then we add bananas for hair and spaghetti across her face as her hair. And so by the end of it, the kids know what steps to use using food references. And so they all draw Porter the Porter. And that's really awesome because... We can stand there and not only read the book and have a fun time with them and show them how to engage, but we get to be like, you guys could be an illustrator. You can write a book because you've written a sentence about a character before. So it really is like a little boost of confidence for the kids too. They're like, wow, I really could do big things. I think that with Porter, I don't know that it was ever intentional. I just think it's baked into who we are. It's always come with the idea of you can do this. Like you ask about my favorite children's book and I can name Pokey Little Puppy. I don't know that I could name another book. I didn't like reading. Reading was hard. Reading was boring. Like it was nothing that I was super excited to engage in and to sit and do it by myself. That wasn't a thing. So Porter goes the other direction and makes it fun and engaging. And Rebecca talks about use of food to create the character, which is great. But she also has a design edict, which is she'll never draw anything that, uh, first grader can't draw on their own. And what's spectacular about Rebecca's talent is that she's able to take those simple shapes, the cookie, the banana, the spaghetti stripes, and pull so much diverse emotion out wow. through the use of framing, close-ups and distance, and also simple changes to the mouth and eyebrow structures. And she teaches that. I've seen her do it in front of a group of a thousand first graders, and they are wrapped with attention. And that's, yeah, yeah that message, you can do this. Without any, both of you are doing this. Sean, have you ever written a book before? No. No. And Rebecca, you've never illustrated a book. And yet here you are, like so actively engaged with this educational process, making it fun, interactive. And you both have bringing in talents that maybe peripherally you've had, but have never put together before. I just find that mind blowing and really cool. What's mind blowing to me too is it started as this small project. It started as teaching kids how to draw her and saying, you can change the shapes on her face, just a few items, the mouth and the eyebrows. That's all we're changing. But we're also teaching the kids about emotions. And so as we were teaching them, it's like, hey, do you feel, do you feel angry? What can you do? Can you count to 10? Maybe take some deep breaths. So yes. now we're looking into that more too. Mm-hmm. We have a plush and we're working on her. Second. I saw your plushie. Yeah, thank you. And what's cool is she has little Velcro facial features that you can flip around and use as a tool to explain to these children about their emotions and what they can do when they're feeling certain emotions. So it's always just growing. You've allowed this book to be part of Children's World, specifically here in, in our area in South Dakota. And you're using United Way to help get that into those children's hands. Tell me about that aspect of that philanthropy. That brings this book from being a book to another, just a whole nother dimension. It's one thing to have a book, sell a book, but you guys are using that book in a much different capacity. Describe that for me. I think one of the reasons we can do that is because we didn't ask for permission. 
And I think that there's a lesson. Is that a theme at all for either of you? Ask me. No, maybe. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt that, Sean. No, it's, it very seriously is. With Napoleon Dynamite, to throw that back for a second, we had sent that script to Fox Searchlight and asked for a million dollar budget to go make that movie. And they said the script was unreadable and they could never stand to watch that actor for an hour and a half. It would never happen. So instead of saying, oh gosh, we're defeated, we decided to put together a, a cross-collateralized slate of three movies, raise investment, and go do it independently. We then sold the movie to Fox Searchlight for $5 million. And at the sales meeting, we did not mention the fact that they could have had it for a million because everybody knew it in the room. But that kind of taught me that an industry will always choose safety and it will choose familiarity, especially when the dollars get bigger. And that's definitely the case in film. But it's also the case in publishing, a world that's contracted so significantly over the last 30 years. When we had put together the concepts reporter and done a few pages, we met with an attorney in Manhattan who specializes in publishing to say, what do you think about this? Who should we take it to? And he was able to laundry list 10 reasons this book would never work very quickly. And I let him get to number three before I stopped listening. And we decided, okay, now it's time to learn how to build a publishing company. So we just created a publishing company. And we do all the manufacturing and do all of the graphic design. And, and Rebecca obviously handles all of the illustration and does such an amazing work delivering all of that. So we built all of that, which meant that our price point lowered. And that meant yes. we could team up with United Way. And there are four reasons that parents and kids aren't reading at home. Number one is time. Everybody's busy. And especially when a book comes home from school, they don't know how long it's going to take. Porter reads in 10 minutes and you get that immediately. Like Dr. Seuss books? Totally. Like, how long is this going to go? It's just more rhyming. What's happening? A lesson, we learned, a lesson we learned was to pull the page numbers off of the book because one of the reasons the attorney mentioned is this is a 70-page book. And when a parent picks up a book and looks at 70 pages, they put it down before the child sees it. But when they open it and realize, oh, this page has one word on it. Yes. It's big. And, and all of us as parents are going, yes. Yeah, totally. They're like, oh, this is 500 words. Okay. Time is taken care of. The second is access to a book that a kid is excited to read. So we created launch day events. The third issue is a child, a parent knowing how to read with a child. If they weren't read to as kids, they don't really know how to read with their child. So we do these launch day events where the kids read in class and then we create what's called parent homework. It's an actual sheet of parent homework. We're like, oh, it's homework. It's for your parents. And you're the teacher because you know how Porter works. You need to teach them how to read to you. And they can't get the words right though. They learn them quick. And then the final issue is cost. And we're able to mitigate cost because we're self-manufacturing. That took away all of the barriers. And so while we don't make a boatload of money on book one, which is the book that goes out through our foundation partners, we have seven more in the series. So if we do well, that's where those revenues can come in. Wow. Yes. And I know, Rebecca, with your kids, how old are your children, Rebecca? 18 and 15 and four and a half. Okay. You've been through it. And that four and a half year old is now just like in the thick of, yes, books. and Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he actually loves Port of the Order, which as someone who helped create it, to have your kid actually like it. And no one's telling a four and a half year old what to like. So I'm like, yeah. How many years has Porter the Hoarder been out? When did you guys publish it? 19. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, which I believe 2019 was last year. So 2019. I was like, 19 years? Those are really, you guys are really young. You guys are <laughs> so that when you were kids. <laughs> 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 Back a lot of Oh, 2019. What in the next year do you guys have from a personal goal that you're working on, maybe as creatives, as artists? And what is a professional goal, more on the entrepreneur standpoint, that you each, this is my personal goal, this is my professional goal. You can take that wherever you want, but where are you heading now? Where are you moving forward to? Rebecca, you start, and I'll think while you have a nice long answer. Go right ahead. No, I never know where I'm going. I just, I go where the wind takes me. I, I am days away from opening this home spa, which I yes. think is a really cool opportunity for me in the film world, especially in the Midwest, and especially in a world where I can't leave too often because my kids are here. It really slows down in the winter. So 
I'm really thankful to have this spa because those five or six months, depending on how bad our winter storms are, it really slows down as far as film. So I'm I'm grateful to have a lot of a lot of irons in the fire, you know, because I have hoarded the hoarder. I'm able to travel once or twice a year to do a two or three week movie. But now I'll have the comfort and the stability of a home spa where I can just have people call me and open my doors and say, come on in. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Uh, Sean, you're up. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. I didn't come up with the answer because I was listening to yours. Oh. <laughs> but professionally, producing movies is transacting storytelling. You're putting together all of the resources, the financial and also building teams and going up. And that's really fun, but it's not storytelling itself. So the next step of not just my career, but my life is owning that feeling of storytelling. So far, I've done seven Porter books, which is easy because they're like 500 words each. And then Rebecca has to do 70 illustrations. I'm going to take that word of easy. Do you feel like a small book is easy to like, hey, these just came off the top of my tongue. Sometimes what looks so deceivingly simple is actually really complex. When the concept is right and the character is right, the books write themselves. And it's especially easy to write in someone else's voice. And so writing in Porter's voice, which is so distinct and clear, that clicks easily. Mm. I've written four more, three more books. Yeah. And those are finishing up now. And so I want to go deeper in that. I've also started keynote speaking, strangely, as a- I saw you had done a, a, like a TEDx talk recently, and you've got other speaker options and opportunities that you have done. And you work with USC as well to help educate. Yep. Doing that at the master's program. And that's just really fun storytelling interaction and, and also looking at building some stuff out in Deadwood. It's interesting to see the landscape of this town change, and I'd like to be able to put a fingerprint on it. You both seem like the winds do take you, but you have a goal, a path, and you're willing to follow or move wherever that tends to take you. I think so. I think there's a downside to it, though, which is determining, deciding to put in deep roots. That's been a theme in my life anyway. And I think the next step for Porter, everything that we've done with Porter has been entirely reactive. We haven't talked about the many classroom activities, which were made by teachers, or the American Sign Language adaptation for the South Dakota School for the Deaf. They did that. There's a Spanish language translation which showed up from the Department of Education, which is flagrant copyright violation, but whatever, it's for kids. It's all fine. So that's all just happening. But to spin that around and become proactive and bring in a chief revenue officer and bring in a distribution mechanism and bring in a sales force and really build that company intentionally hasn't really been the plan, but there's such such an opportunity, both financially, but also in terms of impact to do that. And I see that as a possible next step that needs to happen. It's about two years overdue. With both of you, was philanthropy something that you were both drawn to. Sean, I know you've done other things like 12 Days of Pizza program in the Black Hills. Was that just a natural draw? Is that important to you guys and values in your lives in general? Or was that something that also just happened to occur? I feel personally, when I do things for other people, that I focus less on my hardships. You know, the more you give and focus on other people, it just puts things into perspective. And so I think it's actually just really helpful for one's mindset. But yeah. no, I never thought I would be involved in anything like this. Yeah. It makes me sound like a jerk, but <laughs> no, no. I think when you live in a smaller town, and I don't know what that population number is, because I think Sioux Falls counts. When you live in a town that's not 15 million people, then problems in that community become personal. So in Los Angeles, poverty is pervasive and homelessness is pervasive. And when you first move there for the first year or two, you're giving away all your money to anybody who asks because it's what you do. But slowly your heart starts to harden and eventually it becomes anonymous. While I was at the Creative Artists Agency, I worked in their foundation and I watched how these large financial efforts were moving forward to try to deal with this problem that was so big that you couldn't wrap your arms around it. You couldn't get it in your mind. But the 12 Days of Pizza is a food sustainability project to help families over the 12 days of Christmas when food is scarce because schools actually shut down. That just happened because I was talking to a teacher in Rapid and found out about 
half of her 25 students that were scared of Christmas break a couple of days before Christmas break. And I could communicate it to a local bank president because you can get anybody on the phone here and I could communicate and he could communicate that to a local pizza shop, pizza ranch. And that then immediately solved the problem within 24 hours, not a social issue, but a problem for some families. And when we created that thing that had a story that had an easy mechanism, Another community could pick it up and another, and pretty quick now we serve about 12,000 families. And um, the program continues today, correct? Continues to grow every year. But that's to me, that wasn't philanthropy. That's just like, oh crap, look at that. Do you see that? Oh yeah, I see that. Let's fix that. Okay. There's a problem. Let's fix it. And it didn't take as much effort as you thought it would to for someone to fix it at this small level versus making it a, it is a community issue. Yet at the same time, you didn't take it to the community years like, hey, I know someone who knows someone and let's see what we can do to help. Is that just local or does that regional, has that transferred at all? Yep. It's gone national. Hi. Uh, yeah. Which is a wonderful surprise. Year one was one one school in Rapid. Year two was Rapid, Spearfish, Sturgis, and Deadwood. In year three, I hoped to expand a little further and it just went blah across Pizza Ranch chain. So every place that Pizza Ranch is has the opportunity for Congratulations. I didn't know that, Sean. <laughs> yeah, but that is, that's truly phenomenal. That just, and you were able to do that by telling a story, which is what you seem to do in life. You are a storyteller. And there's such power there. Story lets you communicate mission and it lets you build a team and it lets you extend beyond what your resources are. It lets you, you pick a North Star that everyone can be working for, toward that isn't based on their own initiative or a mandate. It's how you get people to come in with their hearts and not just their mm -hmm. hands, especially if you can't afford their hands. Yeah. We were just talking about this past weekend at a conference that I was at, and it had to do with marketing, truthfully, but the marketing is really the story. It's the reason why someone should come do business with you, but it's also the stories of the others who have already done business with you that make that emotional impact for people to decide uh, what's their next step in their life, what's their journey going to be, what's their why. And that those stories at the end of the day, whether you're in broadcasting uh, medicine like myself, or you actually create stories and are able to produce those for a living, you're so spot on that those are what matters. Yeah. Yes. And you can embed important messages without being didactic and preachy. And you do it by demonstration. But I think that's a really an amazing leadership takeaway as well for our listeners. When you start to bring in your stories for how do you lead, what are the values you set for your own business, for your team? Speaking of entrepreneurship, both of you are creatives, yet you're entrepreneurs at the same time. Has that brought more opportunities than challenges? It seems there have been lots of opportunities, yet what has been some of the challenges trying to marry those? I think that in film, it's a challenging position because you become a gatekeeper to other people's dreams. And that's ah. if you're transacting any sort of media, if you're helping stories get told, if you aren't able to make it happen, that person can feel let down or slighted, which is tricky. And the conditions to make a story, you know, happen, they're unique. But I'd say, I don't know, at the end of the day, there are so many opportunities. A challenge is just deciding which ones you're not going to do and then figuring out how to communicate that you might not do it. Yeah, completely agree there. I, yeah, it's great to have irons in the fire, but. I'm trying to figure out exactly what I would like to pour everything into. And it's always, we really have big dreams for Port of the Hoarder. But yeah, big dreams and big opportunities. Yes. It's true. So Sean, I'll be honest. I'm going to go down to the Napoleon Dynamite route for just a moment. Sure. <laughs> because it's like a cultural icon. It's this cultural icon movie. It, it truly is. And the first time you watch it, you're like, what did I just watch? And the more you watch it, it's this is like a, the cat dog. So you told us a little bit about where that began. I didn't know that. South Dakota native production team uh, beyond that iconic film. How did that come together, the concept of the who and putting that together as a team and a secondary question would be, what did you ultimately learn from that experience? I think I'll start with your second question first. And, we on it. and that is that 
you don't have to wait for permission from an existing industry to do the thing that you want, especially in creative. There's such a, a, a drive to get validation. I'll submit my manuscript to this publishing company, and if it's good, they'll then choose to make it. This is a different era. We can write books and publish books, and we created a, a publishing company, but you can also do it through direct publishing, et cetera. The second part of the question was, how did the character come about? What was your role in helping come up with story, character, production? So I had gone to grad school at USC, and one of my classmates, his name is Chris Doc Wyatt, is creativity in human form. He's 5'5". Five five. He had like crazy blonde squiggly hair, but was bald on top, and he rarely wore shoes to meetings, and he's this really big dude, and he's in Mensa and grew up on Fellini movies and is this amazing force. You got to be careful about those people in Mensa, I tell you. Yeah, Drew. It just <laughs> And he loved being in production. He always loved making short films on weekends. He would steal cameras from the equipment center to shoot commercials to then take and sell to companies to finance his time at USC. And I was off playing business over at CAA and had come out of tech where I learned infrastructure VC firms and how deals get structured and done. And so as we were leaving grad school, we went to the Sundance Film Festival together. And there's a side festival that happens at the same time called Slamdance. In Slamdance, they used to project a movie on a bed sheet and say, look, this is our film festival. And there we saw a black and white 16 millimeter movie called Palooka about a tall, skinny kid with a perm named Seth who wants to help his new friend Pedro get a wig because he shaved his head and he also wants to get himself a suit for prom. And it was a black and white 16 millimeter thing. Doc and I are watching it and I'm like, this is weird. And it's set in the Midwest. And Doc, you get weird. And I grew up, I looked like that kid. Like it's disturbing. It's concerning how much he, I look. I don't know what you looked like before, but he's definitely got a definite character look to yeah, him. Yeah, right? yeah. No, I'm a ringer. Like it's conversation stopper to see a picture of me freshman year. Glasses, redhead, perm. I'm in a suit. It was just disturbing. Two so, socks, you know, the whole thing. The whole deal. And we understood the texture of the world. And Doc Wyatt, he knew the director. They'd gone to undergrad together. So we all met up and Jared Hess said, I've been thinking about making a feature film out of it, writing it with his wife, Jerusha. We all threw crazy stories of growing up in the Midwest together into a big old pile. And he pulled them out and sequenced them into the screenplay. And once we had the script, we needed to identify financing. And the financier was really into business models. So instead of going to say, hey, we've got a movie, can we have money for it? I needed to create a business model. And mm -hmm. I chose to create a cross-collateralized slate like a studio does. And I could go to him and say, okay, first movie out, it's called Napoleon Dynamite. It's a quirky comedy by Jared Hess. And that was the entire pitch for the movie. We didn't describe the character. We didn't describe the world, the plot, anything. I'm like, next up will be a movie called Crawl Space. It's a horror film. Napoleon doesn't have a movie star. So if we don't sell it film festival and get a theatrical, we're going to lose half a million dollars of your money. But here are the economics of horror films. So we'll be able to sell that and possibly recoup here. And the third movie is a drama. Here are the economics of dramas. And he's like, interesting business model. I'm in. So we went off and made the movie for 400000 and yeah, sold it at Sundance. And we hoped that in its best life, it would have the economic profile of the movie Clerks, the Kevin Smith movie which is a cultural touchstone. It made about $3 million in the box office. And we're like, maybe we'll get lucky and have that happen. We ended up making about 45. So that worked out okay. And w why it exists today, I don't know. What When I run into kids who have seen this movie, which is all the time, I don't understand what they're seeing. I can't imagine what their access point is to the film. I had a Napoleon Dynamite chapstick in high school, so I can... <laughs> I think it's seeing some of ourselves in the movie. And it's seeing some of the people we went to high school with in the movie. And it, you've got this, there's some heartwarming spots, but there's some like uh, completely out of the box things, but it's real, but it's fresh, it's inventive. And at the end of the day, yeah, like I said, cultural icon. Everybody knows when you say vote for Pedro, what movie that's from. Yeah. At least you better. Relatable. I was boondoggle girl and I was grandma. I was both of those things. <laughs> we always said it's a, it's about the kid you sat next to in math class that nobody talked to, but really it's about that feeling that we all have. Yes. 
we all had some of those feelings that are happening. And then some of the family things that were happening within that movie as well are, those are real plots that happen to real kids. And so there's a lot going on, I, I think, in that movie. So now with both of you, how busy you are with family, life, entrepreneurial conquests, things that you're doing for your creative artistry, each within your own realms, there has to be time for you. There has to be time to say, this is how I recharge. This is how I can kick butt for my day and make sure that I'm my best for others. Rebecca, what's what are some tools or techniques that you do to make sure that you are on your game? Vitamins. I take a lot of vitamins. <laughs> I take like brain support supplements because I think when you're doing so many things, it's easy to get burned out. Mm -hmm. So I think nutrition for me is the biggest way that I just prevent myself from having meltdowns or falling apart. And lots of coffee too. Coffee helps. <laughs> and Sean, what are some of your techniques for seeing yourself better? Um, yeah, I just lean into my inner nerd, which isn't an inner nerd. It's an outer nerd. It's just nerd. I just lean into myself. Raise your hand if you feel like you're a nerd. Me. Can, these are custom-made nunchucks hanging here on the back wall. Can't say I have that. <laughs> I was studying falconry on a small island off the coast of Canada not long ago, and and I've definitely taken up, nerd. yeah, and I've recently opted to take up archery, which is very nerdy, and I'm very archery nerdy. is not nerdy. It is like really cool. There's some major fun archers in our state, so. Well, there we go. Archery. You should do it professionally, Sean. Maybe you can win tournaments in Vegas. I think it's a great idea. But so far, my performance has not indicated that's going to be in the cards, but... That could be your sport. It is a sport. It is a sport. It counts. I have to say, though, okay. that for me, there's an easy triangle for fill fulfilling my day. If I physically move, which not being athletic is a challenge to get out and get it done, if I have a meaningful interaction with other people, and if I move a project forward, if I hit those three things, there's peace in my heart at the end of the day. Mm, I love that. I think we will end on that. So thank you guys so much for spending some time with me to fill me in on a phenomenal project idea that has done so much for communities, for children, and it's only going to continue to propel itself. And with you two running the helm at that, I wish not only success for you, but success for all of those children out there and their parents whom you're helping become better for and with each other. And I love the takeaway of not waiting for permission. I think too many of us do wait for permission to do things, and we could potentially lose out on some really amazing opportunities versus just going ahead for our dream again. Finding, like you said, what we need to make that happen, but not waiting for somebody to tell us it's okay. So thank you guys so much for sharing with me your art of seeing clearly and a little bit about you, your worlds, and how you have challenged the challenged normalcy, because there is no normalcy. You guys are the living, breathing normals. And yes, I, I again, we can all say we're nerds, but let's raise high fives for nerds. Thank you, Allison. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.